Welcome to this week's episode of Elixir Mix, a very special, very exciting, thrilling, even panelist episode in which hot off of the heels of Elixir Conf, we'll be chatting a little bit about our own reviews and experiences of the conference and the talks that we enjoyed. And then we'll take a little tour of some of the remote trainings that went down via Elixir Conf and talk a little bit about online remote trainings, workshops, and this brave new world of remote conferences. With me, I have Bruce Tate. Virtual. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Welcome, Bruce. We've got Lars Vickman. Hello. Steven Nunez. Hello. Mika Calafiel. Hey, everyone. Hey there. We've got Alex Kutmos. Howdy, howdy. And Josh Adams. I live on Zoom now. <laughs> As do we all. Thanks for that, Josh. Leveling up is important. I spend at least an hour every day learning ways I can improve my business or take a break and listen to a good book. If you're looking to level up, I recommend you start out with the 12-week year as a system to plan out where you want to end up and how to get the results you want. You can get it free by going to audibletrial.com slash code. That's audibletrial.com slash code. All right. So I think most of us were on and off attendees of ElixirConf and or caught up with some of the talks since then, or maybe even spoke or gave workshops there. So I'm very excited to hear from y'all. What were... Let's start with overall, what were some of your impressions of ElixirConf as a remote event? What are some things that jumped out at us as being, you know, really successful, unique, or innovative in that space? Sophie, the purple carpet absolutely rocked. That was, so that was fun. great. It was, it was so kind fun. Of, it's kind of fun to be kind of hanging out in the, in the, so there's a little green room set up where speakers could come hang out and talk a little bit before they were online. And so the impact on, on the conversation in the main rooms was that people were relaxed when they stepped into the room. And, you know, there were some, some really funny comments. Like I get, I think it was in the green, green room and, Oh, I can't remember his name, but, but I was asking someone from Brazil if he's okay. And he said, am I okay? What do you mean? You're from the United States, you know, in, in, in Brazil, uh, we were saying when, when Trump got elected, we were saying, Hey, hold my beer. Yeah, I really love the purple carpet. I was I was kind of nervous about it because it, it's just kind of seems like it might be a hard thing to do. Like, okay, you're going to have this rotating cast of like 30 people coming through a Zoom room. Like some of them you'll know, some of them you've never seen before in your life. Like make this conversation happen and make it interesting. And it just really flowed super naturally. And it it was really comfortable and it was really fun. And I think that's one of the things that has absolutely struck me again and again about the Elixir community. It's just so many people who are part of it are not only, you know, very smart and talented and articulate, but just really open, really supportive of one another and just really excited to, to learn from each other. And I think that that really came through in the Purple Carpet event and it made it just like a lot easier and less stressful for me to, to be a part of it. Yeah, I really appreciate it. I really appreciated the detour into vacuum cleaners. That was that was really the highlight for me. We got to talk, got to (laughs) learn a little bit more about Chris McCordless and his plethora of Dyson vacuum cleaners. Uh, You know, you've been sitting on that pun since the purple carpet itself. So I'm I'm really glad you had an opportunity. I I texted over to tell you right. Yeah, (laughs) I was mostly very happy to see that we've taken the the like community that formed around the witchcraft library and just brought it really to the forefront in in elixir comp this year just a lot of witchcraft and reading fortunes yeah, we leaned, uh, I, I know that bruce, that fun. bruce found out some things about his significant other there <laughs> uh, it, it seemed like a good time i also thought that the conf itself the way it was set up 
the previous comps I've been to that are, have been virtual have used the Whova app, which which I think has been fine, uh, not great. So, like it, there's definitely space for improvement, and I think Whova has done a lot of work to to just accommodate virtual meetups at all, because suddenly you need VODs and live streams and everything and Zoom rooms. So I think they've been absolutely scrambling and they have gotten the features there. So things work, which is amazing in itself. But for ElixirConf, it seemed like they tried to try to slightly roll their own, which which I thought was an ambitious approach. And I think it was better in, in many ways, though, as as we also slightly potentially slightly immature. But it's it's the first time it's been done. I think it's nice to see that people are trying things. I know RustConf had a very successful virtual conference as well. I only caught parts of it, but they had intermissions with with like child's entertainment for for the parents at home. So that was that was novel. Um, I think uh, I think doing things differently, and the purple carpet was definitely doing things differently. Is absolutely key to making a good virtual conference. Yeah, I definitely want to shout out gosh, everyone, but I particularly would love to shout out Meryl Dakin, who was my co-host on the Purple Conf and, you know, everything I know about reading fortunes and horoscopes I learned from her. And, you know, Meryl's great. Not only is she like a very talented and experienced Elixir and full stack dev, but just kind of having her there to hang out and to be part of the interviewing process and part of bringing people together uh, was so awesome. I think she's really so great at that. So it was extra fun for me to get to do that with her. And also a shout out for all of the volunteers and staff members uh, that supported not just that event, but ElixirConf overall. It's such a hardworking, talented, and just like passionate, friendly, open group of people. It's so nice to see uh, the same volunteers actually coming back again and again for these many, many years of supporting ElixirConf. Like I ended up talking to people that you know, have been an ElixirConf volunteer or ElixirConf staff for like five years or as long as it's been in existence, they definitely really have created a wonderful community of their own. And it really comes through in what a great event it is. So Sophie, that's a ninja move to actually have two two hosts in, in for, for a room that size. And, and next time or the first time I do something like that, I'm going to steal that idea. I, I love it. The, the nice thing is that is you saw from both of the hosts that it was a whole lot more relaxed. You didn't have to, you didn't have to be juggling and speaking at the same time, which, you know, and, and the horoscopes were kind of a, a natural way to kind of break the ice and, and, um, and feel and, and fill up unnecessary bits of silence, but really nicely paced, very well done. Well, see, Bruce, you figured out the secret. You've exposed us. That's why we have 27 Elixir Mix hosts for every episode. There you go. So maybe moving on a little bit from Purple Carpet, what else remote conference-wise really jumped out about us as being positive or innovative with ElixirConf? I'm interested to hear what some of your favorite talks were. I, I really love to, to see the, the support that's coming in Phoenix for for multi-part uploads and, and image support. You know, I kind of love for one of the Groxio units to eventually get to the point where I do a multiple up, upload and then an image classifier and Julia to kind of tie those two together, but that's just selfish. What were some of your other favorite talks? I'm actually curious to get Steven's take on the very exciting news about live uploads and live use, since I know 
he had an experience that I think I certainly can relate to, which is like building out a lot of hand rolled code to do a thing, that thing being uploads and live view. And then all of a sudden Chris McCord's like, I got you. We've got this covered. It's so easy. Yeah, I had um, I was working on a like a personal blogging platform that uses LiveView and does a bunch of stuff like uploading images to Imgur, so they show up in blogs. Just kind of like getting a lot of the friction out of working with code blogs, GitHub gists, all that fun stuff, automatically synced. And I was like, well, I need image uploads. How how do you do that? And I watched a talk that I think was from ElectronConf last year or the year before, where they did image uploads, and I was like, I'm I'm not doing that. I'm not, I'm just, I'm just, well, I don't know if you guys are like that, but you see like the solution you're like, there's another way I'll figure it out. I did figure something out. Hooks became a thing. So I wound up hooking into using hooks and going deep into some funky JavaScript APIs to get base 64 image and upload it and do this whole thing. And I was like, okay, it's not great, but it works. Very excited. And then Sophie, I think with malicious glee sends me a tweet by Chris McCord that he's working on uploads. This is like right after I'm like working on it, get it working. And then she says, I was like, rage. But it was really cool to see that like, one of the things I really love about just Phoenix and like leaning on the community is that his talk not only surfaced that, hey, there's this really cool seamless way of doing it. And we've thought about ways to, you know, give you good escape hatches to connect to different providers, but also that he thought about things that I definitely didn't think about. And I love that. Right, like the idea of like, well, why not just send things over HTTP? Well, your socket might be connected to a different server behind a load balancer. I was like, oh yeah, that's true. That's very true. Smart guy, this Chris McCord fellow, and the whole team that works on it. So, not only did I think that that was probably one of the, my favorite talks, also I really liked sort of like explanation and like why things took longer, and that there's way more complexity to uploading images than than you kind of see on the surface. Any idea when that'll be landing in mainline uh, live view? Because I, I saw the tweet about it, but I haven't played with it or seen it in action. Chris says soon, TM. Soon. Okay, nice. I think upload would be a, just a, it's going to be such a great addition for us because I think that's one of the most common questions I see in Elixir when doing Phoenix apps as well is like, how do I upload things? So it'll be nice to have like a standard way to do it. Yeah, to implement that, I can make it better. It's a survey platform. And and a lot of what we did was upload uploads of, you know, tiny videos or images to kind of, it, it helped to to bring engagement into these market research communities, and and it was it was not not pretty. We had a lot of corner cases, and so this was three or four years ago. And so I'm sure that the the team is thrilled to bring something that's a, that's a little bit more stable and reliable into the fold. On the note of surveys, Elixir ecosystem survey uh, showed up. So the results have been published and are now available for anyone to mangle and analyze. I believe Brian Cordarella was one presenting the... I'm not sure if he was so much presenting the findings as presenting the overall results. But it's it's interesting to see, and I think it's very good that, we're, that the community has started collecting this because I think more than knowing what the base state is right now, ongoing how how these survey results change over time is probably the more interesting bit. Can we actually influence these trends? And how does how is adoption changing over time? So I'm really keen to see that going forward in the future. Yeah, you can't really make something better until you measure it the first time. And you know, I've I've been excited to see what some of the diversity statistics are. And 
you can see that it's just it's it's more than than just a few people in the community thinking about it because we're starting to see the composition of the speaker list at, at major conferences change. We're starting to pay attention to those things, and that can't help but have an impact on the diversity of our community. I think it's it's so critical. It's so critical that we get that right. It was also interesting to see a lot of like reoccurring themes and a lot of the kind of open-ended survey questions. One that I saw come up often was was deployment, which I think has gotten better over the years. Like with, Nick, with mixed releases coming out, what was it, one nine? I think it was. That was like a year ago. I think that helped the story out a lot. You know, in, in one eleven, we'll be getting runtime.exs in your config, so that'll also be helpful. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see over time if deployment is no longer such such a pain point for you know either newcomers or, or intermediate elixirists. Because it seems to go away once you once you've battled with it a few times, you seem to be you know you, you kind of get used to it. And you're like okay, I can I can do this song and dance no problem. But yeah, maybe for for beginners and their intermediate elixirists, we could maybe evolve that story a little bit and make it a little bit better. It's particularly jarring coming from a community like Ruby or even Java, where where there are so many kind of well developed deployment recipes and platforms that. It's funny, they're, they're not the end story of the solutions in, in Java or in Ruby in those communities. The stories aren't great, right? But they're repeatable and, and predictable, right? So, so I guess people coming from those communities really notice some pain. More importantly, we also got the results about which Elixir podcasts people listen to. Oh, I missed so, that. Uh, Did we make the list, Lars? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we made the list. Oh. I would say that Thank you uh, we're in third place if you discount the I don't listen to any results, which it was accident like accidentally left in there. I don't think I don't think anyone really, really intended to choose that. Just sixty-five percent of the people. Um but yeah, it's it's we're we're right up there, but we're like one percent like 50 votes short of the top spot. So we'll have to try harder. But honestly, I'm glad to see sort of that level of adoption. It's uh, Elixir Talk uh, leads the pack with 17%. Uh, see, I would have expected our host count alone to put us up there. <laughs> well, we're at 16%. We're okay. We're doing okay. So was there a dedicated question about ranking podcasts by number of hosts? I feel like we would probably win. Oh, this is like yeah, I think uh, we definitely win. Yeah, was was that like Paul McCartney or John Lennon that said like uh, the Beatles are bigger than Jesus? But we can always say that like Elixir Mix is more than Jesus. Yeah. Edit. <laughs> <laughs> How about that Lumen talk? Like the more I hear about Lumen, the more I'm kind of like, okay, let's make this happen. I, one thing that like I hear a lot as a knock on shipping Elixir. Uh, apps is this whole like ship one binary to a server and start it. Um, something you get with Go, something you get with things like Crystal Lang that are coming out, Rust, you get like one binary. Like getting that with movement, I mean, is a really powerful concept that I think will get us a lot of gains. Also, we can sneak it into a lot of places too, right? You have what? the one binary, you know, just it's just a tool, install it locally, you'll be fine. Don't worry about what it's running. Oh, it's running this amazing OTP under the covers. What's the size of the minimal binary with Lumen? Do you know? No, I don't. I don't. I haven't had a chance to play with it too much, but like I, I think it, I don't actually don't even know how ready 
it is to be played with. I know that they released, they did push some code to have you build stuff. Lars, I feel like you're our resident Lumen expert, our Lumen luminary, if you will. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, so I did update side a little bit and before ElixirCon. So yeah, I'm pretty up to date on the <laughs> on the goings on. Um, I wouldn't say like Lumen isn't production ready uh, to any extent, but it can compile Erlang code now. Uh, there are also a bunch of cases where it will fail to compile Erlang code. So try it out. Don't expect it to do big applications or anything. Uh, I, I mostly just want to see if I can get it running on weird architectures that will run WebAssembly. Yeah, so right now the current release compiles to static x86 binaries because that was a faster target to hit. Um, so the next step, I would say, is the WASM stuff. But it's all it all goes through LLVM and stuff. So I'm not sure how much work it is to get there, but they're definitely working actively at it. It's all way above my head. I sit into some of the stand-ups and it's amazing. They just say like IR, IR, IR continuously for like an hour. It's just intermediate representations and like lifting things up and lowering things down. And like there's construction going on, let's just say. But I think Lumen has the potential to be absolutely amazing because it can provide optimized dead tree, like dead code eliminated binaries, both for the web platforms, potentially microcontrollers that run WebAssembly and uh, just x86 binaries. So if you think the beam boot up time for building like developer tooling might be a bit annoying, build, it, build the thing with Lumen and you'll, you'll have a single binary, everything packed in and it will probably start faster than the beam because it doesn't have to start a VM and then load code and it compiles now. Yeah, the, the other interesting bit is there are a lot of other services out there that use uh, WebAssembly as like a plug-in architecture. So I know like Envoy Proxy is one. As soon as I saw that they released like a WebAssembly plug-in architecture for Envoy, I was like, I don't know what, but I will build something in Lumen and see if, it, you know, if I could shove it into the side of Envoy. I don't know what, what exactly it's going to do, but it would be cool. Maybe it'll just be like a hello world uh, that attaches a HTTP header, and my job will be done. Cloudflare has Cloudflare workers for edge computing, like so you can run your Elixir code just right next to where your user is. Uh, so that's also interesting. Um, on the topic of like bringing Beam stuff down to the native level, did you all catch the JIT thing that came out of Code Beam Stockholm? Uh, the Beam now has a JIT, or will <laughs> will get its JIT very soon, just in time. Yeah, it looks pretty amazing. I think the initial results for you know JSON, the the JSON serializer and deserializer, got some serious performance gains, which is kind of nice because every HTTP request coming in is going to have to deserialize and serialize every single time. So if every single request is going to be uh, sped up, that'll be a nice a nice gain, and that's just the beginning, I think. One major problem, there's not really a French version yet, which would be really cool because then we could say that's legit. Yeah, I'm really happy to see that we're finally getting our JIT together. I'll see my way out. I'm really curious to see just like general performance improvements, how how big that will be as an impact on especially bigger systems that do a lot of JSON parsing, just how much performance impact we're going to get out of that. Yeah, there's also different parts of other applications that will see advantage. I thought it was interesting that 
some of the measurements done on RabbitMQ, which is very much like a real-world workload, had between 30 and 50% message throughput increase, which seems like someone out there is going to be like, I just, I just recovered 50% of my CPU for nothing, <laughs> like just updating the theme. Roxio calls themselves career rocket fuel for curious coders. They are some of the most experienced Elixir trainers in the business with over five years of Elixir teaching experience. We're in the midst of a pandemic, but don't let that stop you from continuing to learn. Groxio offers remote Elixir and OTP live training courses with no more than six participants. These short two and a half day sessions give you plenty of keyboard time with your coach, Bruce Tate, co-author of the Programming Phoenix and Designing Elixir Systems with OTP. Groxio also has three extensive Elixir self-study courses available. Whether you want to learn Elixir, OTP, or Phoenix Live View, the self-guided trainings give you the videos, projects, and books you need to make your own breakthroughs. Groxio wants to be your Elixir on-ramp. Subscribe or buy a course today at grox.io. Yeah, that's that's super impressive, especially considering how much uh, like performance and mileage you could get out of RabbitMQ you know, as it was before. I mean, the fact that it would be 50% faster is just, is just mind-blowing. And super, super awesome props to everyone involved in putting together that JIT PR. Big props to them as well. That, that prop, that PR was like 180K lines long. So that must have taken a very long time. Yeah, I think that's like one of the cool things about like the ecosystem in general, right? Like we're we're running on a fairly old, or rather, I will say like long-lived platform that's still getting better by like a lot. It's super stable. We have amazing primitives, amazing concurrency primitives. The platform is a joy to work on. And by the way, we're going to make it, we're going to continue to make it way better. I think that's amazing. We use the word mature. Mature. Thank you. I was looking for, I was like, old. Oh, no, that's not good. But yeah, thank you, Josh. Josh with the save. In the same vein, though, of delivering like single binaries from SpawnFest, there was this one hackathon project called Bakeware, where you could package, as opposed to having like a tarball, you could package everything up into an executable. And I guess like the compressed artifact is inside of the executable and it decompresses it on the fly and runs it. But And it, uh, and it caches it so it doesn't have to decompress the next time. Oh, it does that too. Cool. Yeah, that's that was pretty cool. That shot up on my Twitter feed yesterday and it looks pretty awesome and Definitely something yeah. I'll have to play with. Did anyone so, get participate in SpawnFest this year? I wanted to, and I was late for team registration, so I just kind of poked at stuff over the weekend instead. Yeah, I just well, saw it coming up fairly late, so I wasn't really familiar with it from before, but now I'm very curious. Yeah, that, that Bakeware uh, repo is signed and delivered by the NERV support team, so that's <laughs> I, I'm not surprised that they're working on doing this because statically linked stuff and packing things tightly is always nice but maybe we'll have a elixir mix team for 2021 next year i'm in we'll do something with the lumen to make lars happy <laughs> lumen and live view if we're there yet um so on that topic like ElixirConf, is it just me or was there a lot of live view talks <laughs> have there we reached peak live view there should be i mean live view is is probably the most important advancement in web development for the last five years or so. Not because the abstraction is new, because we've seen this abstraction in JavaScript, we've seen it in Ruby, but because the way they did it, they built on abstractions for nearly 10 years, one layer at a time, and it's turtles all the way down. And it's a mind-numbingly simple paradigm where you, you have two dimensions, you have the data for, for the live view, the socket, and you can render based on that, and then you can change the, the socket, and that's it. 
And, and when you put that on top of the main thing is the consistency of the performance of an individual request. Because when you try to do this in other languages, and, and once you get like after seven or 800 requests, then, then your standard deviation for performance moves out so far that every user is going to have bad experiences. But with Elixir, everything just, just keeps working. And, and I did and, this in Ruby with Celluloid. It, uh, 5,000 was the best you could possibly do. Yeah, yeah. And then after that point, no way, right? Yeah, I definitely think LiveView is, is one of the both most attention-grabbing things going on in Phoenix and Elixir community right now, but it's also very, very, very useful. It's I think it's interesting, and it's very in line with the community, and there's a thing about doing it right and doing it pragmatically at the same time. And it seems to me that Erlang also, the original idea of Erlang sort of fits this. They wanted to solve distributed computing problems, and they didn't pick functional programming because it was so fancy. They picked it because it was a solution to this particular problem. It lent itself well to what they were trying to do. And I think Elixir builds on that idea like, okay, but can we solve this properly? Can we solve this properly? It should still be useful. It can never just be theoretically perfect and super nice, but unusable. It still has to be usable. And I think LiveView really, really hits that sweet spot in many, many cases. What's really interesting to me is Sophie and I are working together on a live view book. And have we announced that anywhere yet? I don't know that we have. I think this is the first, uh, this is the announcement. No, there you go. So we're working on live view book together, the, the Bragg book. And Sophie just finished the, you know, the outline and the story arc for our scaffolding chapter. And what strikes me is that when we did the same thing for the base Phoenix, the Phoenix application with model two, you know, kind of the, modified model view controller, it didn't feel right. This feels right. So when generated code can feel right and it's it's layered immaculately, there's there's the right kinds of, you know, the boundaries and the cores. There's a there's a nice component model within there. There's kind of these a nice separation of of live views that work together to modify the URLs the way that they're supposed to. It's, it's really beautiful when you look at the generated code. And that tells me that we have a lot of abstractions right underneath. And I, I think that's a super powerful thing. One of the things that I look at for a new framework is, is how teachable is it? And, and LiveView is just amazingly easy to teach. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it'll come as no surprise given that we're writing this chapter right now, but I absolutely feel the same way. And I think when, however many years ago, when contexts were first introduced, so I guess when Phoenix was still relatively new, this must have been like three or four years ago. I just remember feeling that it was really hard to wrap my head around coming from Rails, wanting MVC. I couldn't really figure out where to draw that line, like what belongs in your context. And I would have this habit of just kind of like throwing code into different places. Some things are in a schema, some things are in the context, like where's the right place to interact with the database. And, you know, I think, you know, I've since gotten past that and feel more comfortable with it, but seeing the generated live view code, like really drives home that pattern and that abstraction for me in a way that just makes sense. Like the code that you get when you generate live view is, you know, very extensive and comprehensive. You get your schema, you get your context, you get your live view routes, you get your actual live views, your, your components and your templates, and just seeing how elegant it is to work with the context throughout the live view 
how that abstraction as like the API for actually interacting with your database abstraction, with it, which is your schema, it just really comes together so nicely. And, and I agree that it's easy to teach. Or I hope it's going to be easy to teach. I'm feeling like it's easy to teach. And I'm really excited to get this into the hands of people, especially people that are new to Phoenix and new to Elixir, because I think it is really elegant and it's just going to make sense to a lot of people. I think it's going to get them excited about writing Phoenix and writing Live View. And I think it's going to kind of blow the doors open a little bit for a whole new wave of Elixir beginners or even people that are newer to programming in general to coming into this community and working with these tools. Yeah, so we got to, or we, I got to teach LiveView at ElixirConf the first time. And, and the reason is that with the remote conference, I was able to kind of, rather than teach one massive group of LiveView, which is basically me either live coding or monologuing, which isn't that much fun, I got to break out a bunch of smaller classes. And what I noticed, not just this time, but also when I'm writing, when I'm doing a video series on Groxio, when I'm doing the, the live view or even other, other Elixir frameworks related to it on, on Groxio, I find that I'm teaching more design than live view, which is really important because I think that what's happening is that the framework is distilled well enough where it kind of gets small and gets out of the way. So we basically walk through the life cycle, we walk through how the code is layered through that system. Then we can talk about the little patterns of code that you see in well-designed Elixir code. The idea that each Elixir module has a central type and that there are reducers over that and there are kind of constructors and transformers for that. The idea that outside of the core, there's a place to manage process machinery and APIs and things like that. And then within the live view, there are, there are great places. Keep your handlers skinny, right? So we could talk about all these design concepts at the same time that we, we kind of teach. And what that does, what Chris McCord did for every teacher in this room and in the Elixir community, he made us look really good, right? Because we have we don't have to deal with the tedium in details. We can work on higher level abstractions. And so that's made every Groxio class much, much more valuable. And thanks to Chris. Well, on the topic of remote training at Elixir Comp this year, Stephen, do you want to give us a little report back on the workshop that you and I did? Yeah. Yeah. It was really, really fun. We did a, the, the name I've been using is how to use, how to bring in the Trojan horse of Elixir into your infrastructure. We talked about building a new Greenfield Elixir in a legacy world. Did a, a kind of a good breadth of like introduction to things like RabbitMQ, messaging, contracts between services. It was pretty, I think, intense as far as like the things that we covered, but there's something about like everyone's energy at it that even though there was a lot, it was a fire hose, like people seem to really enjoy it. Great conversations. I think one of the things that I was not surprised, pleasantly surprised by was the fact that at, we started a Slack channel or Slack org for the class. Throughout the entire conference, we sort of like, felt like we were traveling as a group, like the two classes that Sophie and I ran, we would just be in the, the chat and kind of like, oh, I'm watching this talk, I'm watching this talk, and had really, really amazing conversations between all of our students. It was really fun. I would love to do it again. Yeah, I, I totally agree, first of all, that it was really fun. And also just seeing that little community spring up around each day's class and how they would hang out in their Slack channel and then talk with one another about the talks as they were happening in real time in the Slack channel and then make connections between what we had discussed and played around with in the workshop with, you know, whatever talk was going on, because there was certainly plenty of overlap in terms of topics. And actually, I think one of the speakers 
Nick Henry, I think, was in our workshop. So I felt like, oh my God, a famous person is in our workshop, one of the speakers. And then when his talk came around, I think the next day, someone else from the class was like, oh my God, I pair programmed with that guy yesterday. And just kind of seeing some of this overlap and community building happening in real time was super fun and exciting. That is super neat. Actually, on the note of that Slack thing, I think that's one of the challenges that remote conferences will need to handle at some point. Because every time you go into a talk, you do that via Zoom. Uh, you can't maintain the Zoom room and have conversations with the people there. But mostly while I'm, while I'm w- watching a talk, I want to like nudge my colleagues or whoever I'm with and like talk about the talk while, while watching it. And I, I had some of that on different Slack channels here and there. But I think just maintaining a place where the ongoing conversations can be like just having a Slack or having a Discord or whatever the grouping chat would be, where you might maybe you have chats per track, maybe you have chats that are like, okay, yeah, meet up and form groups with your friends here. But I think that ongoing feeling of we're at the conference together has been slightly missing for me at all the different remote conferences I've seen. And it's really, really impactful when it starts to show up. I, I had some of that ongoing discussion with some people I'm mentoring. And that was fantastic because it's like, right, I should be watching this and paying attention and getting, just getting like, oh, you went to that talk? Well, I went to this one. Let's discuss. And I really miss that from a real conference where you just get unplugged from your life and go there. Yeah, I think having those like chatting opportunities, I think is really positive too. I had a good experience at a conference recently. It's called Yao Lambda Conf. It's like Australia's annual functional programming conference. And I was lucky enough to give a talk there back in July, uh, which is like one of the upsides of all these remote conferences. Like I probably can't fly to Melbourne to give like one talk, but you can totally dial in. And they set up, I believe it was the organizer set up a Slack channel for each talk. So the people that were watching the talk were chatting along and then they would ask their questions remotely in that Slack channel at the end. And I would read the questions from there. And then people kind of hung out after and kept talking and took the conversation a little bit further. And I, I really enjoyed that. I thought that was a very positive experience too. So kudos to Lambda Comp for getting that right, I think. I kind of wonder how how much we're going to retain from what's happening right now and how much we're going to kind of move on and not miss, right? So like a couple of things from from Elixir Conference and and other conferences like it that I have enjoyed all kind of stem from reimagining the experience of the people in the conference, right? So for example, being able to to teach the same class with, you know, incrementally more money, but just to teach like four to five sections of a live view class rather than one big 50 person session that really shaped the learning experience. And, and I think that one of the things, if we can tap the community in ways that, that allows us to open conversations across boundaries that, that we normally don't see, like, you know, I've been working with this group of, of Kenyans and they attack problems in such a different way. There's so much more encouraging than the developers, than the students that I usually have. I'd love to see that kind of collaboration more, more when, when, this is, when this is all past us. 
I think that's a really nice note to wrap up this part of the conversation on just this thought that we want to be thinking about and contemplating what are some of the positive developments we've seen from, you know, the things that are going on in the world that we might want to carry into the future. And on that note, let's move it over to picks. Back when functional programming was making its resurgence, I found it really interesting that a lot of people were moving over there and it almost felt like it was on hype. And I didn't really understand the power of functional programming until I learned Elixir. Elixir is a functional programming language. It's built on the Erlang virtual machine and it really does some interesting things and makes you build apps in a different way. But what's really fascinating about it is the speed of the applications, the ability to distribute work easily, and just how it manages the functional programming and all of the nice things about it so that you don't have to worry about side effects and a lot of the other things that come out of functional programming. Plus, pattern matching in Elixir is a killer feature. If you're looking for a new language that you want to learn that is going to make a difference for you and give you the opportunity to challenge some of your thinking and find a new way of doing it, Elixir is a great way to go. And we have a podcast now on Elixir called Elixir Mix. And you can find that at elixirmix.com. Does anyone have any recommendations? I will round robin us and start with Bruce. Yes. So today we start, well, recording day, not actually when when this is release day, but we actually start the Groxio conversation about Julia. So the Julia module, the goal is to tie together the two things that I love. That's machine learning and data science and the Elixir language. So the, the goal with the first Julia module is to be able to do a, a web request to, to serve a, a web request from Julia. And you know, hopefully I'll, I'll take that in, in a different project and tie it to a live event dashboard. That's the goal. That sounds awesome, actually. I, I quite enjoy Julia as well, so I'll probably be taking that course. Uh, come on. See, Mika, do you have any picks to share? Yeah, I actually, so two libraries. One I found very useful for working with React in Elixir, and it's actually just called React Elixir Client. They've done a really wonderful job of kind of wrapping all of the React types and various features into an Elixir interface, so it's quite nice. This one's, I, I'm sure this has to have been shared already, but Nimble Options by Dashbit Co., that is just such a helpful library, and I, I really recommend people kind of validate their config options when building libraries. I, I definitely don't see enough of that, and it can cause some really weird bugs. So I, I highly recommend checking out those two libraries. Awesome. Thank you for that. I'll actually tack on. Uh, we did have a React-themed Elixir Mix episode a couple of, I don't know, what is time, weeks, months ago at this point, where we talked with Mariano Guerra about his usage of React and contributions there. So if you're interested in learning more about Elixir and React, that's another thing you can check out. Who is up next? Alex, any picks for us? Yeah, sure. Just one pick for today. It's going to be the ElixirCon YouTube channel. It looks like some of the recordings are starting to find their way onto the uh, channel, which is how I've been spending all my lunch breaks is eating my food and watching ElixirCon recordings. So definitely recommend that. Awesome. Thank you. Any picks from you, Stephen? I'm pickless this week. Well, forgive it. Just this once. Just this Actually, week. I shouldn't talk. I feel like I often don't have picks. All right. Moving on to Josh. So I have a pick that I think is relevant although I can't truly pick it because I've never run it. However, Big Blue Button is an open source, like remote teaching and online conference piece of software that I know they've used for some of the GNOME conferences. And I, my pick is actually their architecture diagram just because I, I want to look at it real carefully. Awesome. Thank you. 
Who did I skip? Lars, picks from you? Sure. I'll start with the upcoming Live View book from uh, two good friends here. Very excited about that. And I'll also mention that on my website, you can actually get in touch if you want professional mentorship as a developer. So you can just go on there and see if the times I have available are, are of interest to you and if the price is right. And if that sounds like something you want to do, take a look. That is very exciting. I'm sure that you will have many takers. I do have a couple of picks for everyone this week. So I don't think I picked this before, although I do think I've definitely mentioned it. So GitHub Classroom is awesome. And I promise you that I'm not being incentivized in any way to recommend this. Stephen and I used it to structure and release the content for our Elixir Conf workshop. And it was, first of all, just kind of like a joy to use, like super intuitive, really easy to figure out. And it kind of solved all of our problems around permissioning the repos for the students and each day's workshop. Everybody gets their own copy of the assignment and their very own repo. You can activate GitHub Actions that do auto grading, which is to say run the tests on commits that students push up and have a report back to you as the instructor. And just overall, it was so helpful, super awesome. And the feedback from students in the workshop, pretty much everybody had something nice to say about GitHub Classroom. And so I just kind of want to shout that out and recommend it to anyone that's doing you know, remote education at this time. My other pick would be, this is probably a repeat pick since I think you mentioned this last week, Alex, but I've been really enjoying your Elixir tips over Twitter. First of all, I just think that they look really beautiful. Is that weird to say? Like you formatted them so nicely and it's just like very appealingly laid out. Yeah. And it's just, I've been learning stuff, really nice bite-sized little pieces of information to dig into. So definitely give Alex a follow if you want to check that out. And lastly... My last pick would be the PSA from Governor Cuomo and Paul Rudd about wearing a mask. I don't know if you guys have seen it yet. Certified young person, Paul Rudd. It's truly hilarious if you want to see a great public service announcement with lots of dunking on millennials, then you should definitely check it out. It's a laugh. All right. I'll grab that link in a moment. But in the meantime, I think we're ending our recording. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.